0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Thornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello everybody, welcome. Uh, We are super excited here at Village to have a very good friend of the firm pete flint a partner at nfx which is a fantastic uh, venture firm that we've uh, we've done a number of of co-investments with and and we'll do more we're we're excited to have pete join us uh in, in addition to being a, a great venture capitalist pete is also a fantastic entrepreneur a unicorn uh, a, a entrepreneur and we are uh really lucky to to have pete join us pete thank you for taking the time to uh, to join us here and talk to some some village global founders
1: yeah, my my pleasure, Eric. Great to be here. Good to see your uh, virtual face and everyone else's. So, um, uh, really good, uh, really good to be here.
0: Awesome. And and the company, of course, you started. Uh, for those who don't know, is uh, is is Trulia that you uh, you sold to, to Zillow a, a bit ago before before joining NFX. And, and you're no stranger to uh, to chaos and, and difficult times. And uh, why don't we why don't we start there? You wrote this uh, this great blog post, I believe, tw- twenty eight moves during a, during a downturn. Uh, right after after covid hit and it had sort of three you know different principles w- w- why don't you unpack the the different principles in terms of navigating a, a a downturn and then we'll we'll you know go deeper into into some of them
1: you know i think for many of us sort of in the startup world it's like we were kind of like you know this sort of barrage of kind of like um questions and and decisions that had to be faced and i guess you know i i you know as as my role today as an investor was kind of many of the portfolio companies and other companies reached out and the sort of experience and perspective i offer is is really more from the fact of the unfortunate reality of kind of seeing you know elements of this twice so my first startup experience was within in an, an online travel business in europe kind of the went which web 1.0 company that went through 2000 and 2001 and september 11th and came out and It was acquired for over a billion. And then Trulia, kind of similar thing. And they are the storm in in real estate. You know, I guess that's, you know, the the framework that we use and NFX is kind of people that don't read our stuff really focuses on frameworks that we we think about is really three distinct phases. So managing losses, gaining ground, and then managing psychology. And I, I think folks have kind of, the managing losses are like, you know, which is really about just like, the old plan is the old plan what is the new plan just like a mental kind of bit switch which is like okay this is the focus that that you need to have and i think that's you know six months in we're kind of you know for better for worse we've made that bit switch but the really sort of interesting stuff is the how to use the um this is an opportunity to gain ground and i think that this is you know particularly for startups just the sort of the notion of a startup you're small you have you're less incumbent than the you know this incumbent than the incumbents because you don't have customers and enormous revenue and massive teams and real estate like you can you can move fast and you should move fast and so the reason so many startups do actually thrive and come out of these downturns in a great position is because they they see the fast moving water and they kind of go over there this is where the action is and they take advantage of it and that's that's truly sort of the gift of, of early stage um, startups that they can find the find the opportunity and there's different ways to do that and the third and I think this is I, I, the managing psychology piece which is really I think is particularly challenging is is also fundamental and that's both managing your own psychology as a leader and, and a founder and then also managing the psychology of your team and I think for all of us we've you know I think the way that typically you kind of get through tough times is you, you know, go for a walk, walk with a friend or go and chat about things and you get perspective and you sit down and you hug and you cry, whatever the sort of tough thing you're going through. And that's just been really hard for many people, for obvious reasons. Um, and I think that's, it's fundamental that, that kind of every individual starts to kind of think about their own psychology and think about the psychology of others and, and kind of really invest in that. Um, so that's, You know uh, just a kind of short
0: perspective and totally let's go deeper into into gaining ground uh what's a framework or two that that entrepreneurs should be thinking about in terms of how they can do that or maybe to make it a bit more concrete uh, an example or two of of a company in your portfolio or one that you know that that has done that that could be illustrative for for people on this call
1: well i mean simple thing is is focus i think the you know often companies are working across sort of three or four different projects and they could be sort of, you know, and, and reality is that one of them is, you know, fingers crossed hitting right now. And the sort of temptation can be to just like, okay, let's, let's maintain those three or four projects, but really just doubling in on what is that one thing that is working and really proving that out. And actually have the freedom of saying, let's not do those, those other things or let's put them on ice. Um, that's certainly one area. The, the other thing that I've seen quite successfully has been you know let's just if you if you're in a sort of a covid negative company where things are challenging really think about moving upstream and locking in supply or looking in demand um for particularly for marketplaces but also many businesses so let's just say you are a you know and it, it's sort of perspective from from my experience uh, truly was that in 2008 2009 no one was buying houses no one was kind of interested in that, and for us to sort of like, you know, bang our head against a wall to kind of to to do that would be sort of a waste of time. So we really moved sort of upstream to build deeper relationships with brokers, franchisors, the big brands, and the sort of data infrastructure to ensure that when things did rebound, we had all the plumbing and infrastructure relationships in place that we could come out in a very very strong position. So almost. So, if your core customers aren't working, how can you move upstream to lock in distribution or lock in supply? So that you know that that can I've seen other startups you know where they've had that manifested itself is like no one's buying their stuff, but they're basically building up a massive community where when they will start to buy um, what they're selling, then that's an immediately um, you know immediate opportunity for them. The other the other You know, the other stuff is just being aggressive. Etsy comes to mind as an example. Like, They were just like, their growth has been off the charts. And there's a number of other companies, whether it's Square or others, they look at this and like, let's just be aggressive. Because what happens is that, again, the incumbents are worrying about their real estate, worrying about their pension plan, worrying about this, this, all this other stuff. And like a startup can be super aggressive, to take advantage of it, and th- and that takes a little bit of courage, or a lot of courage, particularly when you've likely gone through a tough time. But is
0: absolutely a you know a short term window that they have to take take advantage of. Another one of your frameworks is is turn all fixed costs to that you can to variable costs.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's a we've we've seen how companies that have come out of this you know they've obviously generally kind of reduced their burn and then sort of turned up their variable costs which particularly today is being like it's harder to hire however you know the labor pool is larger it's harder to commit to hiring you know that's the reality of it and so if you can start to move people from kind of full-time to variable um, whether it's agencies or whether that's real estate or whether something else like that not only reduces your kind of cost base on a a fixed basis but also generally we'll see you scale more
0: efficiently as well how else should companies be thinking about sort of hiring in a in a remote first or remote only uh for now world
1: well i think it's it's a lot of it's happening i think the you know reality is a similar process applies in terms of just like uh, getting to know someone understanding their kind of credentials you know potentially getting them to do some work-related sort of interview questions, so sort of project-based interviews to, to see how much of fit they are. And then trying to spend a bunch of time uh with founders to be able to sorry with with employees to prospective employees to really understand that sort of that personality fit. Yeah, you know, honestly it's much the same, you've probably seen this, much the same as kind of investing. like, you know, NFX has been as active, if not more active than we've ever been. And it's just you, you know, it seems strange you're not sitting in the same room but you're you're just doing the same processes of getting to know each other understanding the you know the dynamics the chemistry the ambition and you know in it in a remote first environment your talent pool just sort of widened dramatically you know which is a real benefit to startup founders anywhere you know a, a lot of the sort of the silver lining of some of this is i found it easier to actually get to know the true self of people during this environment, because you're like, show me your house. Where are you working out of? Like, what's what's the, you know, as you're speaking to prospective employees, you're like, show me the um, the world that you live in, which removes a lot of the, uh, the sort of ceremony, sometimes of kind of in-person interviews, and so you can get to authentically get to know the real person a bit more than you perhaps would have done, oh. uh, would have done previously.
0: Oh. Going back to managing psychology, let's talk a bit about managing team psychology, particular in a in a remote only world. How do you think about you know team morale, especially if your company's going through a hard time? uh, Team culture uh, and maintaining and 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 strengthening that. What's your advice for for founders there or or frameworks they should think about?
1: I mean, culture is such a sort of fundamental part of startup success. When you look at the sort of great um, startups. They truly have just terrific cultures at their core. I think sometimes a default reaction to culture is that culture is something that happens, a bit like your sense of humor. You don't need to like, just something you have or you don't have it, it's sort of ingrained in who you are. But it's actually not true. The the sort of culture needs to be curated and it needs to be sort of invested in. And, um, you know, I've seen the the, the sort of best success where, where culture is, very deliberate actions by often the founding team that are programming the culture. And so, you know, that, you know, whether that's sort of simple things like happy hours, which you used to do to kind of like more kind of uh, thoughtful things that, that people would do. So the reality is you have to program your culture. And I think there's, I think that's particularly hard in a remote work environment because you, you have to create tools or create, processes or create rituals that you you do in this environment and you know when you're not in the same space that's harder but you know where where i've seen companies investing is investing in the time to get to know each other and what's going on in their lives particularly in small team team groups where they've you know zoom is is such a sort of business tool that kind of people are sort of it's it's inherently frankly sterile you kind of have to, you know, it feels very sterile as a, as a medium. And so how do you break through that? And how do you, you know, whether it's playing games or truth or dare or kind of, you know, various different kind of fun things that to get to know your colleagues. That needs to be invested in. And then finding things that where companies, rituals that you can think of as specific to the success of the individual company. But that it, it needs, I think you need to put, you need to put the investment in. I think a lot of founders are saying, well, we're just going to like, we're going to put this on hold because we, we're going to be back in the office in three months time. It's not going to happen. And so you kind of you don't delay on investing in these elements because, the, the you know, the, the mental health challenges in workforce are absolutely are very real and very challenging right
0: now. Let's fast forward a bit. Let's uh, let's say it's three months from now, or six months from now, or or whenever it is where people can now go back and, and work in, in an office and, and with with not that much risk. How should companies be thinking about the trade off between you know everybody going back to the office, assuming they all live in the same place or in similar places, versus staying full remote versus staying sort of hybrid, uh, remote and in person. How should companies think about the the trade offs or how to do either? I think
1: so. So interesting. We did a a survey a little over a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, where we asked founders and we asked investors the question about what do you see as the the remote work trends? And if I recall that there's sort of the expected plan for most founders is a physical HQ, which would, you know, have a Uh, a modest number of people and then the majority of people would be remote distributed. And it seems that kind of having a presence is going to be important. But, you know, I think for the near term, at least the sort of employer pool would be somewhat distributed and they would be distributed in a way that if they needed to come to the office, they could come to the office. So not for everyone, but, you know, I think sort of distributed in, you know, an hour or two's drive. What was what was interesting in this survey is that we asked um, investors' view of remote companies and if they prescribed a discount or a premium to um, to valuations of remote first companies. And interestingly, they the investors thought that remote companies should be discounted in their valuation, which is which is interesting, right? I think you know you could argue that remote first companies could be a premium because they're able to attract better talent at lower cost and i think what is and i don't know for sure but my expectation is what what vcs are thinking is that it's really really hard to kind of to build an amazing organization that's remote first that has sort of exceptional productivity exceptional efficiency builds an amazing product and so they're sort of naturally you know because reality is there's in the spectrum of kind of successful companies, there are very, very few that are uh, remote first at scale uh, or remote only at scale, just cause it's so hard. So I, I see this hybrid uh, existing for the foreseeable future. And then some functions are more suited to distributed workforce than, than other functions. So I, I see that as being the, the new normal. I think it's gonna be, it's, it's gonna be persistent. In that you know, once these trends happen, it's very very hard to change them. Just like you know, when Google planted its um, office in Mountain View, that does that doesn't change. Twenty years on, that the same is true for the way that you think about this sort of office and dynamic because you can't you can't take this stuff away from people very very easily.
0: And I, I wonder if it's just going to take a GitLab or you know one of these just examples who've who've sort of done it from the beginning and went all in to become. You know, mega unicorn, tech companies, for investors and other people to say, okay, it can be done, it's a viable, op-. and because you, as you mentioned, just the, the access to global talent, the you know not having to pay for real estate. Uh, I mean, there's uh, in certain ex- it, it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, and there are certain products and certain companies that are better suited than others, obviously. So, you know, the sort of open source software world. Is you know, is one area where historically has been sort of um a hotbed of this because it, it's the sort of type of people that work on those projects. But, you know, I don't know what's an example like car manufacturing. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's not gonna be you know, it's not gonna be so easy to kind of to to do that.
0: Totally. Let's talk about fundraising during this uh, during this time. So you know, some people here it, to extend their fundraising, they might be raising their seed, they might be raising their A, they might be raising a bridge. Some people have an easier fundraising, people have a harder fundraising. Talk about what's different uh, in, in the in this fundraising landscape. You just had a great post on it today, and particularly what how should founders approach it differently, and and what you know what framework should they understand in terms of how investors are, are looking at it during this time.
1: Yeah, you know, as I as I speak to other kind of VCs, I actually think. Um, the fundraising, but I don't know whether you're seeing this as well. But the fundraising velocity has kind of picked up. That there's like so many deals, and that may be a reflection of the stock market and Nasdaq and and reaching in many of these tech companies are reaching highs. But fundraising has picked up, and I, I think the. But I wouldn't say that's universal. I think there's also a bit of a bifurcation that's going on. That sort of known teams are raising very very quickly, um, or, or teams that there's a sort of. A, a stamp of kind of credibility, I guess, for want of a better word, that they're sort of known quantities. Being, It's been easier for them to raise um, in this environment. The major, major hurdle that some founders face in kind of getting the business, getting kind of funding over the line is really solving for this question of relationship, empathy, trust, you know, those sort of, how do you know that this is kind of the real deal, which is, you know, not sitting in, not sitting next to someone or going around the office and, and having that kind of exposure to the sort of the, the physical and touching and feeling that, that kind of company. And so the more founders can invest in um, proxies to help that, the better it is. So thinking about kind of how do, you, how do you, as a founder, how do you give proxies for trust? One is to just to be sort of your authentic self. To kind of to founders to really sort of go beyond the kind of PowerPoint and just be kind of who you are. Two is to double down on, on, on kind of referrals and references. And, you know, if you're, if a founder was pitching to me and they found three people that they knew would also kind of email me and say, Hey, you know, Bob is a, an amazing founder. You know, you should definitely take, um, take their money uh you should definitely invest in that company and then customers as well like you know getting customers to kind of you know more color around the customers and the product so trying to find proxies for that trust is critical and that you know i think that's the downside the negative which is um is around this you know this exclusivity of silicon valley that it makes it harder for people that don't have networks to kind of raise capital which i think is a is a systemic problem in the valley, but you know that those, you know, I think that that that's kind of what I'm hearing from other investors that um trying to find proxies for trust. So those are the you know there are sort of simple things from kind of investing in your your home setup, you know, high quality cameras and lighting and and all the rest of it, which makes a difference as well.
0: Totally. Yeah, I want to go back to, to managing our, your, your, the founder psychology because you you know, we're building a real estate company during the 2008, you know, uh, crisis and then, you know, went on to a, uh, you know, IPO and merger. H- how did you get through it? Uh, share more about it, a bit, you know, bit of your own personal journey. You know, the founder's not to, supposed to show fear and have all the answers, but we all know that's, that's BS. How did you get through it? And, and w- what sort of takeaways do you take from that advice founders? Well,
1: I, you know, I remember this sort of this stuff viscerally because it's a very, it's a very, um, challenging time you're you expect you as a founder you're you're sort of you know at least expected uh, to have the answers and to be the captain of the ship and you've no idea where you're navigating what's going on so it's it's a very a very challenging time i think what the comfort that i had through this was was going through it in 2001 not as a ceo but seeing how that kind of played out and and i frankly was sort of like you know very rational. So there's there's either two scenarios here. They're kind of like either sort of, you know, in 2008, the economy is coming to an end, which we're all screwed in that environment. And like, you know, global bankruptcy is a disaster. Let's just go back to rural farming again. Or things will come back. And you kind of have to believe that things will come back. So you just need to sort of discount this sort of like the real negative downside scenario. And you have to believe that things will come back. And what I went through in in 2001, which was like, are we going to have global World War Three or is things going to, you know, still people going to travel? And and you realize that, you know, what you're, you know, particularly in in real estate, people always need houses. People always will travel. People need houses. There are many things you do. So you have to believe that this is going to be, you know, your product is still going to be desired. Maybe less so, but in time, you know, you'd like to think more so. So you kind of, you know, have to sort of position yourself in that environment. The next is the observation that, you know, fast moving startups take market share in a downturn. So this is your time. This is absolutely your time. You have to feel that this is, you know, while you digest the kind of economic or human tragedy of this, you kind of need to say this is this is my time to be aggressive. And this is our time as a company to to, to, to lean in and 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 go for it. Because market share is just you know compounds during these these times, so so that I think there's that, that sort of mental sh- mental shift. I think from a communication perspective, what was helpful for me was to one is to to open up open up transparency. You know I think you you have the courage to know that this is this is a path forward, but also open up transparency about how the business is doing, and more importantly, what the business needs to do. To be successful, and how do you execute to that success? So, you know, where I've seen this, you know, some that, that we did, or that I did, and 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 seen other companies do is really sort of break down the kind of finances and business model of the company, and really have um, clarity. Frankly, what every person in the company can do to help to be successful and hit the, the required metrics. So, if you're, you know, if you're if you if you sort of build out this model where you say, well, if we increase our sales conversion rate from 5% to 7%, and we increase our lead volume from this number, we increase our sort of uh, conversion funnel by this, like, you know, model it out, then that will, you know, either enable us to be profitable or enable us to kind of hit our series, you know, next fundraising goal. And then just have clarity for what in every individual's role in hitting that goal because many of the team are just looking for clarity of like, what do I do? Like, how do I do this? And having leadership where there's a specific plan um, that's presented and, you know, this is something you should be doing, not in a sort of crisis environment, but kind of all the time. How does the business work? What needs to be done? And what's my role in impacting that result? That kind of communication was um, was sort of, and that really important kind of foundational piece the, the other thing that, that, you know, I was sort of born out from experience was was there are certain things you just don't know the answer to. And particularly on kind of how you'd get, you know, whether that's you know, on, the, on the product side or the sales side or the marketing side, you just don't know the answer. You know, if, if, if your business needed to double volume in 12 months to get to the goal, like maybe you don't have the answers and that's okay um you know depends on the size of the team but almost almost like throwing this out okay if we hit this number we're going to be in an incredible position you guys need to figure it out we need to figure this out and i was you know that you know an element of sort of vulnerability combined with a call to arms um for the team you know in this within a foundation was hugely in, inspiring i think for the kind of me as a leader of the team and then also just for the company as well and that galvanized people like, let's get to work let's figure this out that uh they, they could sort of have a hand to play in it i think the temptation often for founders and ceos is that they you know the buck stops with them that they should have the answers i know the plan and and um you know as long as you've kind of hired great people which most of the time they have it's you know setting sort of objectives for the team and then the rise to the challenge is like it's not just delivers better results but also makes work much more rewarding and interesting and, and challenging and and so that that's for kind of like you know seed series a companies i i'd strongly recommend a framework around that
0: totally yeah it's it's pivotal and and, and going back to 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 fundraising for to doing advice for series a companies I want to ask the, the inverse of what I asked before, which is how should founders be thinking about how to evaluate investors in a in a remote uh, first world and really get a sense for hey you know, this person might join my board, this person might be the lead investor What would you advise there?
1: Well, I think in a similar way it's a long it's a long term relationship like whoever's on Cap table is critical in a, such a long term relationship, so you know in a similar way, doing your kind of uh, back channel references finding people that have worked with, a uh, with that, you know, that partner or that firm, you know, doing, you know, three, four, five sort of back channel references and this stuff becomes pretty clear. You know, if they're enthusiastic about speaking to you, then, you know, there's, there's probably, and they want, you know, the, the, there's probably some good stuff there if they want to avoid talking about it or it's sort of too busy, then it's pretty, you know, it's pretty clear as well. So I think just finding kind of those, those back channel references the other thing just you know who knows how that this sort of world will work work out but i think there's you know I, I would encourage founders to you know both find investors that are willing to do the work in this environment and just can be kind of helpful whether it's customers or whether it's advice or recruiting and just do the work to help them and then also just to be around in three years time some you know particularly kind of like a bigger rounds. I think there can be a bit of a sort of a flight to quality. And so could I and I think our world is being rewired right now. And who knows exactly where the world is going to be. But um, I think I think being being in an environment where just like you see the sort of you know, many incumbents in in traditional industries are, are sort of falling by the wayside, it's possible the same is gonna happen in VC. That kind of like you know are they, is this company going around in in a few years time and that's hard to tell but I would be really thinking hard about that as well.
0: How honest should founders be w- with their existing investors, particularly when they're going through tough times? And of course, you know, you want to say you know be, be honest, but I guess what is sort of the tension between sharing everything that's on your mind versus sharing you know the need to know stuff? How how. You know, proactively transparent should founders be with their investors? What shouldn't, if anything, founders should share with it with their investors?
1: Gosh, well, I mean, I I would absolutely lean on the kind of bias of of being way more open than perhaps you might traditionally be. From my own experience as a as a founder and raised money from great firms like Sequoia and Axel, and I, I, you know, when things were bad, I sort of sometimes resisted the temptation. To kind of share that information with them, just because I I was sort of worried about the negative downstream consequences of that. And uh, there was one particular incident where I we were kind of relaunching the website, and it was a complete disaster. The metrics tanked, disaster. And I had been hyping this up for the previous two three months. And what happened? You know, what happened was I sort of I I didn't I would try to fix it before sharing it. And again, things dragged on. It was a big, just a huge disaster. And it was only probably after about a month that I sort of, I shared the news with the investors. And they were frankly very, super supportive, very helpful, giving kind of guidance about how to sort of reverse the situation. I shouldn't have done it, you know, a month ago. And I spent a lot of kind of mental cycles thinking like, should I share this? Shouldn't I share this? Shouldn't I share this? Like, and then after that point, I was like, all right, screw it we're like open book they're part of the company every piece of good news and bad news was shared you know so they you know they were you know i copied my board in on on my kind of uh, not the level of the kind of like senior management notes but the kind of like company updates and was fully transparent and i'm not sure they've read all that content but it created a much better relationship when I are because they knew all the good things and they knew all the bad things and also there were tactical things that they could help me with all the time you know i i open up fully and i think you have you know it's it's often said but a lot of founders have a sort of imposter syndrome that they're like okay i don't know how to navigate i raised this money i'm trying to do this job it's the biggest job i've ever had i don't know you know what am i supposed to be and like and I think there's sort of a natural tendency to kind of close up and trying to put on a put on an image, and it never works. It never works. You have you know to, to be a transparent, authentic self is is necessary to, to enable the um, the board to be and the investors and team to be truly on your
0: side. I want to go back to what we were talking about in, in gaining ground, uh, particularly. Your um, recommendation on moving upstream during a, a pause in buyers in, in 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 the company's target markets. Can you give a an example of this, or, or, or a couple examples, or, or an anecdote of, of of what a process looked like, and any challenges or surprises d- during it?
1: Well, I think you know honestly, a lot of it comes down to sort of um, instrumentation of your metrics, and I think you know let's just take um, an example. If you're if you're measuring success by revenue. In this environment, you actually, uh, you know, it depends on the company, but you may actually just be like, frankly, look at the wrong metrics because you're not realize you don't realize that, you know, that you you may be gaining ground, but you, you feel like you're missing your metrics. So there's, there's the other way to frame it is thinking about market share as a kind of, as your key metric, if that's possible, or in terms of the sort of upstream kind of funnel metrics. So, you know, A very sort of, you know, simple example would be, you know, moving upstream is thinking like, if you're a, I don't know, a mattress company, uh, and you're trying to sell mattresses, if you're looking at your SEO ranking, for instance, like, you may be that no one's buying mattresses right now, or less people are, but you're seeing your kind of SEO ranking, and all the leading indicators of that grow up, go up and up and up, then you're actually going to be in a good position when kind of things bounce back and people are buying mattresses. Um maybe matches is probably a wrong example. Cars may be a better example. Like people are you know, your your kind of SEO metrics are increasing. If your your influencer metrics, your demand side metrics are going up and up and up. And similarly on supply side, if you're if your sort of your number of SKUs are increasing dramatically, maybe less stuff is being sold, but you're building liquidity and scale on the supply side over time, then that would be beneficial. And I, I think the you know, give yourself permission to kind of reframe the metrics to think about, okay, long term success of the business rather than sort of be dependent on the short term economic cycles or, or consumer trends that are happening right now. Think of, think about those sort of long term metrics. If this company will be successful in five years' time, not necessarily the revenue you have today, but the customer relationships, the community relationships, the, brand you built the um the technology platform try and try and sort of give yourself the benefit of something that is you know what what will help this company be successful in a few years time from now
0: i want to zoom out uh, a little bit you you ran a bit about this you talk a little bit about this the idea the the mental shifts one needs to make from being a, a founder to a ceo uh especially as the, as the company starts to to grow a little bit Why don't you talk about that, the evolution from a founder to a multifaceted leader?
1: There's there's a sort of couple of experiences that I've gone through and sort of seen others go through. One is the, you know, I I, I think it's also just realizing that most startup founders generally are kind of the product manager first and um, product managers, you know, often really good at kind of having empathy for their customers to try to kind of, to build things and to and to have a sort of insight into what the future looks like and there's that transition from being kind of a a product manager to a um to a company manager and that can often can, can often be a hard thing for kind of certain people to go to go through i think some of the processes that 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 kind of i've gone through is one is certainly to start to level up your communication so rather than you know It's an area that often is underinvested in. As companies scale, you need to kind of level up your communication and what that sort of practice is, not necessarily talking more, but having more clarity about what the company's purpose is and effectively what's the North Star. What is the North Star for the company? And this can be, you know, one of the challenges that many startup founders face is that they have a sort of, a large number of sort of conflicting constituents in the organization organization so you know whether you in in the sort of phase one you have just employees because you have a startup you have a team you have no customers no revenue no partnerships and so you start start with employees and then you add in investors you add in customers you add in partnerships um and and the sort of the list goes on and you end up having to make these trade-off decisions about am i who am i trying to please here and having real clarity about what the company's mission is. And what is almost a stat ranking of these stakeholders and constituents as you scale is not only critical from a communication perspective, but also enables you to kind of make um, faster, easier decisions. So, an example from my time at, at Truly was that, you know, with two sided marketplace, consumers on one side, and then agents and the real estate industry on the other side. And, you know, many two sided marketplaces, whether they're Airbnb, or or truly, I have to kind of make this navigation between who am I really focused on, and of course the answer is both, but you kind of have to pick a side. And you know, from from our perspective, is like who we really care about fundamentally, first and foremost, is the consumer, the consumer. Whereas many other people, back when we were getting going, was focused on the sort of industry side, and so. And that, that sounds easy, but it actually gets harder as you scale. So having that clarity around, okay, this is the this is kind of who we are in terms of who we're serving. And you need to be uh, very explicit around how you're communicating those changes. Another core element is going to be around delegation. I think that's a really hard thing to do. And I, I think often they have to delegate. They clearly have to hire great people. but delegation can be a sort of painful process so there's a whole sort of you know further discussion in its own right but i think there is an you know it does require a sort of a commitment to delegating the, fl- the, the flip side is that you don't want to delegate everything and, and what i mean by this is that like there are certain things that you uniquely have as a leader as a founder that enable this company to be uniquely successful because a, st- a startup sort of it shouldn't exist. You know, it's a very, you know, startups like really hard. They sometimes just, it shouldn't exist. It's a force of nature sometimes. And that's because the individuals bring something very unique. And so if you're able to delegate, but you know, whether it is the, you know, the, the website design or the growth engine or key customers or like, what is a thing or, you know, a couple of things that you're like, I'm going to stay really dedicated to that detail. Because that really matters um, and I'm uniquely suited to that and you know delegate the sort of finance or legal or, you know sales whatever you feel that perhaps there are better people to do that's critical and on, on delegation one thing that I've you know a mistake I made early on in, in my career was 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 bringing in bringing in folks that you know this is you know there's been twenty years product management Google they like they're a, they're an exceptional leader you know, you, sometimes you feel that 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 individual is is so more experienced about that function than I am. I have no business kind of like a telling you know, telling them how to do their job on a kind of day by day basis. Absolutely wrong. You know, the, the, a very thoughtful, committed onboarding is um, absolutely absolutely critical. I remember doing a doing a um, podcast not long ago with April Underwood. We worked with Stuart at Slack and she talked about onboarding process, which frankly was a, she described it as an 18 month process. And that process of, of kind of onboarding with, is just necessary. And April's super talented and it may it may feel uncomfortable, that level of kind of onboarding, but it's necessary to set the direction because often senior people, when they come on board, they they follow the same playbooks that they've had previously in the previous organization, which is you know, sometimes that's useful, but most of the time, you kind of need them to change the specific playbooks that they're using.
0: And you know, during this sort of crazy time, sometimes founder conflicts can can emerge, perhaps on, especially on the direction of the business or the, or the north star. Have you seen founder teams being able to to, to resolve that, or, or how do you recommend when sort of uh, you know teams have you know conflict over something so uh, so so pivotal, or even just differences of opinion?
1: I think every case has been unique so I think there's been various you know as I think about this sort of conflict sometimes it's it's sort of uh okay to have people to like you know what was right at the beginning may not be right today so kind of some some transitions naturally happen I think there there can be a sort of challenge around the sort of ego elements and particularly on successful startups I think that I think that's can be can be harder to navigate, but I think people just need to kind of put that to a side yeah. and focus on kind of how to be successful and how to be a good person. And you know, a lot of this comes down to sort of picking founders at the beginning. But I I, I don't know if there's a sort of framework that I've seen that that is sort of universal in terms of navigating navigating these situations.
0: Talk a bit about uh, distribution and how. how- you know, uh, getting distribution and building sort of growth practices has has evolved uh, over time. Particularly, if any lessons from from Trulia or, or any of the other companies you've you've been affiliated with or, or worked on.
1: It's interesting. I mean, back back in the you know ten years ago, I think there was just this sort of there was an element of free and open distribution, whether that was Facebook or whether that was the App Store, or whether that was Google, and 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 there wasn't you know in a in a less competitive uh, world you know, um, it was a real ecosystem for, for enabling companies to be successful. I think where we're seeing distribution gains right now is sort of, you know, core word of mouth virality is coming back in a big, big way. So product excellence, you know, the penetration that the sort of internet and mobile has is that great ideas get spread incredibly quickly. And I think the sort of, you go back to this sort of notion of growth hacking, right? So, And it, it literally was sort of an engineered process. And that that's not completely disappeared, but the sort of the commitment and the art to build an exceptional product where that itself spreads through word of mouth and through the quality of the service is truer today than ever before. Great products, whether they're B2B or B2C, do get spread. Because the sort of channels of communication between individuals are are much freer and open. So so there's never a substitute for kind of building great products. The, the other thing that, that we've seen today is that while these sort of mega platforms, particularly on the consumer side, are perhaps less, you know, there's, they're less of these sort of monolithic kind of, not monolithic, but these sort of enormous platforms that are just going to nail um, this distribution channel or be successful. The distribution channels are being increasingly fragmented. And you know, you're seeing companies that are like really using many of these sort of vertical platforms to drive distribution. You know, whether that's they're embedding themselves in Airbnb experiences and like building building kind of brands in that, or obviously kind of Instagram and you know, those or TikTok and like your your the distribution channels is like massively fragmented where companies need to focus. And so, and being able to, uh, being an expert in navigating these distribution in these channels has has been essential. I think those are some of the, you know, some of the more interesting challenges right now. People are kind of finding these sort of symbiotic relationships with vertical platforms, whether they're the sort of leaders in these bigger categories, that they can build these very rapid scale very, very quickly. And in particular, I think in, in a COVID time, where there's been this, you know, this, the lack of equilibrium, where you see either sort of supply side or demand side changes, where that's open up that's open up opportunities for new startups.
0: We were talking. Uh, I wanted to get into where you're excited to to invest nowadays. I, I understand you're spending time in in labor marketplaces, and you've always obviously spent time in in real estate. So maybe talk about why you're excited about labor marketplaces and. And where you see uh r- r- real estate going
1: yeah so i mean the nfx one of our core theses around network effects um both b2b and B C. so some of the areas wh- where we've been more active in has been um, labor marketplaces right now we're just seeing the future of work just change dramatically uh so we just see kind of like fundamental opportunities around um, labor marketplaces in the future of work more broadly and we. We see that as a very interesting area. So, and that is, frankly, as work becomes increasingly digitised, and that creates more opportunities in that environment across the board. Whether that's new areas such as remote work, or whether that is traditional areas um, such as healthcare and construction, where we where we see labour marketplaces popping up in whole manner of different verticals. Prop tech, you know, and real estate is just like such an enormous asset class that we see huge opportunities. Uh, continue to happen there you know i i think it's across the board where it's fixing the transaction whether it's the way people are li- living today i mean the way we live is completely different <laughs> than it was um you know six months ago and in many different ways so the way that we live is is changing and then just advances in technology enabling transformations in construction or design or planning or building that those are very interesting areas as well And I guess some other areas we've been looking at is, is um, gaming and sort of, you know, gaming is my partners in particular are kind of real experts and founded massive gaming companies. So we think that's, that's a really interesting area as well.
0: Perhaps in in, in wrapping up here, what what do you think your next, uh, next blog post will be on or, or any other sort of. Last words to our, our founders that we haven't yet uh gotten to gotten to talk about, you th- but you think is uh, is important that people should be thinking about for the for the months ahead as we sort of think about beginning to transition.
1: I think uh, I think for many people it's just taking every every day and week as it comes. Right now, I think that's th- those are the questions. I I think there's so many things that our founders are trying to figure out right now. So I, I don't have a specific topic in mind right now, but I'll, I'll come back to you on that
0: one. Totally and, and you'll, you'll, you'll come back. we'll do another 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 episode. Pete, thank you so much for coming and talking to uh, Village Global founders and, and spending uh, time with us and and hopefully uh, you know uh, one or two of these uh, will be an NFX founder founder someday in, in later rounds but uh, but on behalf of our, our founders, we really appreciate the, the time that you spent to talk to us.
1: Awesome. My pleasure, great to, great to be with you today.